Am I on here? Okay, we're good. Well, some any Red Red Sox fans out there? Probably not. Got to thank you. <laughs> He's also a Patriots fan, but we won't go there. Um, I love these these videos, like Undercover Boss, where somebody really high kind of disguises who they are, and they come down and they reveal themselves, and, and you know, they're behind the scenes. And there was this video clip that went viral, many of you probably saw it, of David Ortiz. And he was a Lyft driver, which is basically uh, like an Uber driver. And he's driving around Boston, he's got a wig on his head, and this is right before the playoff starts. And he is driving people around, and they don't have a clue that they're riding in the car with David Ortiz. And uh, so he begins to just ask them questions. You know, hey, do you, do you like the Red Sox, you know? And one of them says, yeah, I'm going to the game tonight. And he says, well, so am I. I'm going to the game tonight. <laughs> and, um, and when he gets in the car, he, you know, he does, he says, well, before I go anywhere, you puts his hands on the wheel and he does the, the famous poppy thing that he does every time he gets in the batter's box. They don't recognize it. And then he says, um, another lady says, oh, I love the poppy dance. He says, oh, you love the poppy dance? And he starts to do the poppy dance in the car, which I'm not going to do for you. Um, <laughs> but they don't get it. They're still oblivious. Another lady says, um, she said, oh, I love David Ortiz. She said, I've, I've got some of his shirts. I've got a few of his jerseys. He says, really? He says, all of my shirts are David Ortiz because I am David Ortiz. <laughs> and takes off his wig and they freak out. And the reason I love those is because, can you imagine what was like when Jesus was here on earth? Well, when Messiah's come, he'll just show us all things. Uh, I who speak to you am he. Drop water jug, head for the city, forget what you've come to do. I mean, Jesus blows all grids of high coming low. You see, Jesus intruded into this world. We have a harder time, I think, accepting his humanity than his deity, that God came that close. I mean, imagine... He's right there. People are not seeing it. And in this story in Daniel 2, we are given a heads up because when the gospel writers write, and we'll get to this later in the sermon, and, and the book of Mark, for example, the gospel, much of Mark is referring back to Daniel, and Daniel tells us that there's going to be coming this kingdom. It's going to come as a stone, and it's going to take down the other kingdoms. Well, when Jesus comes, what's the first words out of his mouth? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. What kingdom is that? The kingdom that everybody been reading about because they knew Daniel and they knew that Daniel 2.44 was true and that the time is at hand. The kingdom has come. Here it comes. It's come low. It's intruding into our world. So this vision has some real feet to it, and, and it's about Jesus. So let's give attention here to the Word of God. Um, and I'm going to, instead of reading the whole text, I'm going to kind of walk us through it. 
And so last week we considered a little bit of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and the image uh, is described in verses 31 to 35, and then we have the interpretation of the dream in verses 35 to 45, and then we'll consider its impact for us today. So beginning in verse uh, 31 of Daniel chapter 2, we're told, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And so we have an image here on the screen here, so you can kind of get an image in, in your mind of what he's describing here. And so, okay, we've got this, this head of gold, we've got chest and arms of silver, we've got middle and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet partly uh, iron, partly clay. Then we are told that as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And so now we have another image that now introduces a stone, and this stone is going to come and it's going to destroy this statue or this image. And the stone is going to become a great mountain and fill the whole earth. So that was Daniel's or Nebuchadnezzar's troubling dream of which no one could interpret and no one could tell him the dream. But the Lord revealed it to Daniel. And so now Daniel tells him what the image is and now he's going to tell him the interpretation. And the interpretation is this, and I'm going to begin reading again at verse uh, 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beast of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule, rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever." Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. 
Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. And so let's leave that slide up for a little while as I go through the different kingdoms. So this is, scholars are pretty united on what these, uh, the interpretation is that Daniel's foretelling uh, in this, and God has, you know, through this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Now Daniel's given the interpretation of kingdoms that are to come and it begins with, obviously, Babylon being the head of gold. And that kingdom existed from 605 B.C. to 539 B.C. And we're going to get to the fall of Babylon. We get to chapter 5 and the famous handwriting on the wall in chapter 5. That's going to be the end of the Babylonian kingdom. And Daniel's actually going to live through that into the, uh, it's going to serve in under Darius with the Medo-Persia Empire, which is next, which is the, the, the breast and arms of silver. And this second kingdom is only mentioned briefly, um, and there's going to be quite a bit more detail when we get to chapter 7 and 8 of Daniel. But this empire ruled from 539 to 331 BC. And then after that, we're familiar with Alexander the Great. And this is the, the uh, Greece, uh, uh, the kingdom of Greece. And that's the belly and the thighs of bronze. And Alexander the Great, uh, his kingdom, his empire lasted from 331 to 146 BC, uh, but he only lived to be 32 years old. And there's lots of different theories out there, but some think that he was poisoned. Um, But he, he was a man who wept in his 20s because there were no more lands to conquer. Okay, so these are the three uh, kingdoms coming uh, that are described, but then uh, we have uh, the kingdom of Rome, and so Rome is going to come next, and that's the legs of, of iron, the feet of iron and clay, and Rome dominated the world from the defeat of Carthage in 146 BC to approximately 400 uh, AD, and notice how Rome is described. It's described here as a combination of weakness and strength. On the one hand, it's strength and power described in verse 40 as iron. And it's going to crush all these things to pieces. Yet on the other hand, its weakness is described by feet of partly iron, partly clay. And so that's where we get the term today when people say, oh, he's got feet of clay. Well, when people say he got feet of clay, what are they referring to? They're referring to this. And notice how in this kingdom, we'll get to that in a little bit, of how it's getting progressively uh, weaker as we go. And so uh, Joyce Baldwin in her, in her Tyndale comment- commentary says uh, that this kingdom had an intrinsic weakness for potter's clay and iron do not bond together. Unity was impossible. And it talks about how they're mixing with one another in marriage, um, and these diversity of marriage, apparently, it's not holding together so well in, the, in this um, empire. And so the kingdom was vulnerable. And uh, you would think that Rome was, was all iron by its army. But isn't it interesting that, 
you know, the kingdom fell was also weak from within. You've got lots of idleness in Rome and luxury and debauchery and dissipation, and it ultimately undermined the society. And so it was partly weak and partly strong. Yet it's under that very Roman Empire that there's going to be this little area called Galilee, and there's going to be this little place called Bethlehem, and there's going to be a little lady named Mary, and she's going to be with child. And that's going to come right in the middle of the Roman Empire, this stone. And in verse 44 and 45 of Daniel, it says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Now, there are kind of two main schools of thought as you get into Daniel, and we'll get into this more when we get to chapter 7, but just to kind of introduce you to, there's, there's an eschatological and hermeneutical debate over how many kingdoms are in view in this dream, and when does the stone actually come? And here are the main two schools of thought. So the one view that's most popularized by dispensationalism is the view that there are actually really six kingdoms in Daniel 2, not five. You say, well, how many are up there? Um, Well, if you go to the other slide that actually has, so if you look at that, this is the typical uh, dispensational view that's, uh, and so where you get six kingdoms would be the kingdom that lasts forever, the kingdom of Christ, but it's the last two that are different. And so in the dispensational view, the divided kingdom is actually, it starts with Rome, but then there's going to be a revived Rome someday, and there's going to be ten kings, and they get this from Daniel 7 and then Revelation 17, which talks about 10 kings, but they read that back into Daniel 2, and they make a big deal about 10 toes, but there's nothing mentioned in the text about 10 toes, but I'm just giving you, this is one school of thought, and it's pretty, uh, pretty big time in a lot of uh, commentaries. So that's the one view, but in this view... Okay, in the dispensational view, the reign of the ten kings is a revived Rome. It's really the the Christ and the stone isn't coming yet. It's future. And so the future is that Christ is going to come for his saints. The church will be called up to heaven and the stone will fall. And so Daniel 2.44 is really about the second advent of Christ, not so much the first. Now, the other view... um, which uh, is the view that more of where I line up with on this, is that, uh, and I respect the other view because it's taking it very literally. And we'll get to this more when we get to Daniel 7. Um, But um, the other view is that this is referring to the first advent of Christ. And so I think the natural reading of the text gives us some clues of how to interpret the text. First of all, the text says in verse 44, in the days of those kings the stone comes. So how do we, what is the natural reading of those kings? Well, those kings refers to the four kingdoms or kings represented by the image that's right there. And so you have one statue and you have four kings that are listed. And in the days of those kings, a stone is going to come and it's going to crush into pieces these other kingdoms. And so 
you say, well, it's only talking about, uh, what about all these other kingdoms? Well, the Medo-Persian Empire, think about it like this, was conquered and incorporated by Babylon. It's taken over by Babylon. Then Greece, under Alexander the Great, had the same thing happen to them. They were taken over. They took over the Medo-Persian Empire. And the Roman Empire, though it never conquered all, all of uh, Alexander the Great's empire, it conquered much of it. And, and to some extent, the, the Roman Empire was greater and had more worldwide influence than the others. And while the image was still standing, this is referring to Rome, that's when the blow was struck. This would indicate that during the Roman Empire, a rock or stone representing the kingdom of God the kingdom of God comes breaking into this world and ultimately crushes the Roman Empire. Perhaps historians in this great debate over, you know, who, who takes the, the fall for the fall of Rome and the Christians are often thrown, you know, thrown under the bus that it was their fault that the empire fell. Well, the Bible perhaps was right in predicting all along that Rome had feet of clay and Christ comes and takes down uh, the the kingdom of Rome. And so lastly, I would say also uh, why I think this is referring to the first advent of Christ um, is that the image itself that's presented, when it talks about a division of kings between the legs and the feet, it, it, you wouldn't have this natural idea in your head that this is old Rome and then a revived Rome some thousands of years into the future. The division of the kingdom was within Rome itself, one kingdom that was partly iron, partly clay, and it's talking about these mixed marriages in the context. So the natural reading of Daniel 2 seems to make more sense that the image was not, um, uh, you know, the feet and the legs are to be taken together and not divided into two kingdoms. I think that makes more sense. So that's, that's the image. You have its interpretation. Now what in the world does this mean for us as the people of God? Well, when you consider the image and you start to take back and you look at that image, you see in the big picture we see that the kingdoms of which Daniel's given this interpretation of, they're not getting stronger with time. They're getting weaker with time and actually more vulnerable. And the statue begins with this robust, beautiful head of gold, but it ends with feet of clay. So we see deterioration and decline in value in weight, in unity, and in brittleness. So we're learning that earthly kingdoms are temporary and transitory, and they're not permanent and enduring. So we're seeing two contrasting kingdoms. We have one kingdom that's described to us in this passage here as how is this kingdom described? It's described as a rock not made by human hands. And just like the steps of the altar of God, it's of uncut stone. And God's kingdom rules over all the other kingdoms. And so this kingdom is enduring. It's never deteriorating. It's never gonna be destroyed. Of its increase and of its power, or its increase in its peace, there'll be no end, we're told in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. And so these other kingdoms are winding down. They're experiencing entropy. They're experiencing the second law of thermodynamics. <laughs> but God's kingdom shall never be destroyed, never given to another people. And in verse 44, we're told, it will last forever. And so the, this other kingdom, this feet of clay, it's like Toto's gone behind the curtain and exposed Oz 
for what it really is. It seems so impressive, yet it's got feet of clay. And when we use that expression in our culture, we mean he's just a person and very weak at that. And so we have two kingdoms going in entirely in two different directions. So which kingdom are you living for? I want you to see some other connections. There's a strong connection here in Daniel chapter 2 with Psalm 1 and 2. You remember Psalm 1. Psalm 1-4 is a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And we're told in Psalm 1-4 that the wicked are not so. They don't delight in the word of God. And as a result, it says they're like chaff, which the wind drives away. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. In Daniel 2.35, the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and gold were all crushed at the, all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so not a trace of them was found. That's distinctly to remind you of Psalm 1, because they didn't delight in the word of God. Psalm 2, Psalm 2 is a psalm that, that shows us the nation's rebellion against the Lord and against his Christ, but then we see that God has installed his king on his holy hill, it's his son, and then we have this prophecy, ask of me and I will Surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And this is talking about Christ. And then we're told in Daniel 2.44 and 2.45 that when Christ comes as this rock, it will break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw a stone that was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. So Daniel 2 is meant to take you back to Psalm 1 and 2, showing you the big picture of, of what Christ is doing. Jesus said, the scriptures testify of me. There's a poem that sums up this contrast of the two kingdoms. That I, don't, I don't think there's an author or this is an anonymous. It says, the kingdoms of the world go by in purple and in gold, they rise, they triumph, and they die, and all their tale is told. One kingdom only is divine, one banner triumphs still. Its, servant is a, its king is a servant, and its sign, a cross upon a hill. And so, as you think about the New Testament now in Daniel chapter 2, we see a connection, and I'll just bring out the connection between Daniel and Mark. I think there's a connection in the other Gospels, but Mark is a very strong tie. We're told in Daniel 2.44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And what are the very first words out of Jesus' mouth? It says, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, which was in Rome, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What time is he referring to? What kingdom is he referring to? He's referring to Daniel 2.44 kingdom that he has come to set up. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, there's another vision, and it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And so here's the picture of God the Son coming before God the Father, 
And Jesus' phrase that he uses of himself the most in the Gospels is he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And one of the most stunning statements that Christ makes as to his own deity, that he is God, is in Mark 14. And the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. Ego e me. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He's saying Daniel 7.13 is me. And so, of course, the high priest rips his clothes. What further witnesses? What further testimony? He's committed blasphemy. This, was, this is what led Jesus to the cross, was his testimony. So Jesus is the Christ. He's the one that's setting up this kingdom. And so the question for us is, if these kingdoms are going in two different directions, I wonder if some of us are like Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar gets through hearing this, this whole thing just as you're hearing it this morning. He doesn't really care. He's glad to add him to his, his, poly, his polytheon of gods, his polytheistic, oh, God of Daniel, oh, he's pretty, pretty impressive. Your God's great. All right, we're going to make my kingdom much bigger. You're going to make a, a statue 70 feet tall and 70 feet wide in the next chapter. We're going we're gonna to really show you what gold's about. But he didn't really care. You see, he was living for the moment, not living for what matters. Are you living for the moment? Or are you living for what matters? Because there's something that matters here that has eternal value and weight. Nebuchadnezzar didn't get it. He was just glad, well, I think this is on out in the future. This kingdom's coming, but I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And he continues to live for himself. Jesus is going to come and crush the other kingdoms. And he will crush us and put us to shame if we have not repented of our sin and our selfishness and put our trust in him. The good news this morning is that when Christ came, there is a first advent and there is a second advent. But in the first advent, as Christ comes, he doesn't just come and crush everybody. Jesus got crushed. Jesus was crushed. You see, Jesus comes small. He doesn't, he, as Tim Keller says, he wasn't born in a civic arena. He was born in a stable. He didn't live in a palace, but he was immediately made a homeless refugee. The guests at his birth were not A-listers. They were shepherds. He didn't come onto the scene with, with blue angels flying over his head in, in precise formation and then picked up in a helicopter and dropped down at the 50-yard line in front of 90,000 screaming fans and, and scanned all over the world for everybody to see. That's how we think he should have come. Instead, he came to some shepherds that were out in the fields, these nobodies. See, the great thing about this kingdom is the king. And at the climax, the height of Jesus' life, he ascended not a throne, but a cross. You see, Jesus was crushed. That's the difference between the first advent and the second advent. We are told in Isaiah that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
And so the gospel that is presented in the scriptures refers a lot to Jesus being this stumbling stone that people are stumbling over. They either treasure him, he's this precious stone, he's the cornerstone. The cornerstone is he's the most important thing. The cornerstone is the most important piece of the house. Is he the most important thing in your life? More important than staying up till 4 a.m. to watch the election? Is he more important to you, really? Do you really treasure his word? Do you love his word? Are you reading the word? Are you treasuring it? Do you say, oh, he's the cornerstone of my life. I am building the foundation of who I am and my image and who I am and what I talk about, about Jesus. He's the cornerstone. But is he the cornerstone of our lives? You see, there were people that stumbled over it because they were trying to find another way to God. This is what Romans says at the end of Romans chapter 9, the beginning of Romans 10. Let's be reminded, what is the gospel and what is it not? You see, Paul's been given the gospel and he says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. How does that happen? How do people who aren't pursuing righteousness attain it? That is a righteousness that's by faith. That means they're not trusting in themselves and how good they are and how well they're doing in their daily devotions. They're trusting in Jesus. They, they, and it says, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. So they were trying a different path. It was the path of obedience. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. If you believe in Jesus, you won't be put to shame when he comes and he crushes at the last day. Are you trusting in him? Or are you trusting in your performance? You see, we have to repent of our goodness to get the righteousness of Jesus. So he goes on and says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And here's the threefold problem. Romans 10.3, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Do you see the three problems? This is the natural three problems of the human heart. I'm ignorant of really his righteousness. The whole book of Romans is about the righteousness of God. And they're trying to establish their own righteousness. And they don't submit to God's righteousness. What is God's righteousness? Verse 4. Christ is the end or the fulfillment of the law for righteousness. You want to be righteous? Trust in Jesus. He's the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so the Gentiles are attaining it and, and Israel's missing it. They're stumbling over the stumbling stone. What about you this morning? Are you stumbling over the stumbling stone? Are you putting Christ as your treasure? That that's where your trust is. In his death, in his resurrection, in his perfect life, and in his death, or are you trying to make it on your own? 
the good news is that Christ is a sufficient savior. He's the rock of our salvation. So call upon him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you, King of all creation. Lord, help us to see your kingdom at work in this world, even when we can't see it. Give us the eyes of faith. Lord, even uh, as it's being squashed and crushed in other countries right now, we believe your promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church or build your church here build it in our own hearts. And may you be our cornerstone. May our identity and who we are be built on you and not anything else that perishes. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna close in singing this great hymn of the faith, Almighty Fortress is Our God. This was written by Martin Luther in the 1500s. Let's stand together and sing.